2: Nick, as you know, in our last episode, we talked about what midterm elections are and why they matter. You know, all the sweeping implication stuff, how midterms can affect the country with congressional redistricting and this referendum on the president and potentially flipping the House and the Senate and infusing Congress with all of these new ideas and setting the stage for massive change. But today I want to think small.
1: Small. Like, how small?
2: Like, local small. Let's start with a town up north in New Hampshire with about 7,000 residents. That is small. <laughs> in August, I drove up to Plymouth, New Hampshire. It's a little college town in a place called Grafton County. Really charming, there's a town green with a gazebo, and an old-timey diner, a covered bridge. Oh, of
1: course it's got a covered bridge.
2: It's very New England. And across the street from the town green in what used to be a bookstore is the office of the Plymouth Area Democrats. So that's the sound of people doing the wave.
1: <laughs> Which wave?
2: The blue wave. Oh my. There were campaign signs leaning up against the walls. They had a life-size cutout of Obama. There was a potlucky party atmosphere in the room. And I was there to meet this gentleman.
3: My name is Jeff Stigler, and I am currently the police chief in Bradford, Vermont. I am currently campaigning for Grafton County Sheriff.
2: Jeff lives in New Hampshire, but works just across the border in Vermont.
3: This is the first time I've ever... Uh, ask the public for their support and obviously for their vote on both the primary and hopefully the general election.
2: This was a Grafton County candidate night, the second one that week, and Jeff was there to introduce himself and to convince people to vote for him in the New Hampshire primary and to explain exactly what it is that a sheriff does.
3: It's actually a constitutional position, states in the state constitution. But uh, any of your listeners could uh, Google uh, RSA 104 and you'll see what the primary functions, uh, at the core of what the sheriff's department has to do. So did you Google it? Of
2: course I Googled it.
3: What What did you find out?
2: Well, first and foremost, in New Hampshire, we call laws RSAs. It stands for Revised Statutes Annotated. And RSAs include what amounts to a job description for elected officials. For example, how an elected sheriff can and ought to lay down the law. They transport prisoners, deputize bailiffs. Bailiffs,
1: like uh, Bull in night court.
2: Right, okay, there you go. Yep, Bull was probably deputized by the sheriff. Until I spoke with Jeff Stigler, I really didn't know what a sheriff did, or frankly, the difference between county sheriff and local police chief. But every time I voted for a sheriff, I was voting for someone who has major responsibility. And it's the same deal with everything from governor to school board members to comptroller. What
1: actually is a comptroller, by the way?
2: They're kind of like a state's chief financial officer. Mm -hmm. But the point is that there are a lot of obscure offices on the ballot, and they can seem insignificant next to federal candidates. Like, who cares about the railroad commissioner when you've got some flashy Senate race going on?
1: Oh, I have a feeling that we care, Anna.
2: Oh, we care. This is Civics 101, the refresher course on the basics of how our democracy works. I am Hannah McCarthy.
1: And I'm Nick Campodice.
2: And today we continue our five-part series on the inner workings of midterm elections with a closer look at the local and state offices you'll be voting on this November.
1: Like sheriff, judge, and governor.
2: They may go by different names depending on where you live, but either way, state and local offices can have a big-time impact on your life. Uh, The issue with midterms is that I think we
0: train people to be very hyper-focused on national elections, but most
2: elections... Uh, that are local, are closer to the people. That's Cheryl Cook Callio, former high school teacher.
1: For 39 years.
2: Also a former councilwoman and former candidate for California State Assembly. Well,
0: our house in California is called the Assembly, and uh, there are different names in different states. Most of them are House of Representatives, but in California it is the Assembly.
2: And she says that, yes, of course, it is important that we have good congresspeople and good senators, but...
0: But... Whether or not you get a stop sign at the end of your street is really dependent on the kind of city council you elect. Uh, county supervisors have control over regional issues that have to do with transportation and and uh, maybe even water. And so midterms are often ignored because there is no presidential candidate. Uh, but they may be even more important because there's such low voter turnout during a midterm election.
2: So think of it this way. What is more likely to affect you, Nick Capodice, on a daily basis? the U.S. defense budget, or the road in front of your house?
1: I'm going to definitely say the road.
2: It's the road. The road. It's the road. One of the things that
0: an individual can do is pay attention to those things that are most important to them. In most cases, that's local politics, your school board, your your city council, uh, county supervisors, and perhaps your state legislature, depending on the size of the state.
2: So many of the people who keep your city or your town running smoothly or possibly not so smoothly get elected during midterms. You've got school boards, for instance. They can set school policy, decide how the money gets spent, even decide whether or not to close a school. You've got county commissioners who can be in charge of everything from assuring water quality to collecting property taxes. Some even control public welfare programs. And Nick, judges. We vote for the people who are in charge of sentencing people to fines, probation, even prison. In many cases, it is in our hands to decide who gets to make those decisions.
1: What about something like the Register of Deeds?
2: Yes, I was so curious about Register of Deeds.
1: We've seen signs for that all over the neighborhood.
2: Everywhere.
0: Oh, Register of Deeds. Okay, that's probably what we would call the clerk which has to do with all the paperwork in your life that is important. Your marriage, your births, the deed to your house, those kinds of things are done. And usually that's controlled by someone who is elected. Uh, So there are things like this that may or may not affect you on a daily basis, but they certainly control the legalities of what you do in your everyday life.
2: Nick, what gets me about all of what Cheryl is saying is that You know, when we complain about government and inefficiencies and taxes and all that stuff, I feel like most of us are directing that complaining, that ire at the federal government. You know, the whole joke. Thanks, Obama. Yeah. You know, like we're mad at the president. We're mad at the federal Congress. And then there's this vague sense that the people at the very top are the ones who make things good or bad for us. But a lot of the structure in our lives is controlled at the state and local level.
1: So basically it seems like we should be paying as much attention to these smaller elections and offices as we do to say, the presidential election.
2: Yeah. I mean powers vary from state to state you know but I would say at least as much like take the sheriff candidate Jeff Stigler who we met at the beginning of the episode. If he wins the midterm he'll essentially be publicly appointed law enforcement for an entire county. Races like that probably deserve more attention than they get. But there are offices up for election in midterms that do get some real attention like governor.
1: But. What does a governor actually do?
2: Or a lieutenant governor, for that matter.
4: This is very difficult for me. You take somebody who just lost the lieutenant governor's race and ask him about his the job that he could have had. And, you know, not only is it difficult, I want to tell you how sharp that hurt, because my lieutenant governor is now governor, okay?
2: That did not start well. This is Bakari Sellers, attorney and former state rep of South Carolina. He was in office for eight years and ran for lieutenant governor in 2014. He lost, but he had some insights on the positions.
4: Do
1: you think he was really offended by that?
2: I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) If he was, he forgave us.
4: I know it was tough. No, Lieutenant Governor and Governor, they they are different in every state. We now have, uh, if I'm not mistaken, two African-American Lieutenant Governors in the country. Um, So we're making progress on that front. Governor, of course, uh, depending on your state, we have a, a legislative state here in South Carolina, meaning that Really, our legislator is way more powerful um, than our governor is. But in certain states, it's the other way around, although the governor has a bully pulpit.
2: Right. So in the same way that the president is chief executive officer and commander in chief of the country, the governor plays that role for the state. So they can veto bills just like the president, appoint judges just like the president. Uh, They may be in charge of the state National Guard or have the power to pardon criminal sentences And, just like the president, most governors have someone waiting in the wings in case things go south.
4: Lieutenant governor's a lot like vice president, and the most important job they have is to be prepared. And why do I say that they have to be prepared? Because just like the vice president of the United States... The age old saying is you are one heartbeat away from being president.
1: So governor and lieutenant governor are a little like the president and the vice president if their powers were limited by state borders.
2: Yeah. And Bakari says these are really important roles to watch because the person who you elect governor in this year's midterms, they might end up being on a different place in the ballot later on.
4: When you have a governor, you have to think that your governor is only one election away from running for president of the United States. Um, in Massachusetts, you, you've you had Mitt Romney run for president of the United States. Lots of presidents were governors before the presidency. Thomas Jefferson, Teddy Roosevelt, Jimmy Carter, George W., to oh, name yeah. a few. But you see governors run all the time. You're going to have a, a series of governors who step out there and run for president of the United States. And so when you each step up that you take, there's another realm of possibility.
2: That's one area of the ballot that we have not Touched on yet, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, state legislators, and they are really important. It varies from state to state who in your state legislature you get to vote for in every midterm election, um, but who you're voting for is really important because aside from actually making the laws that govern you at a state level, those legislators are in charge of a process that can decide the outcome of elections.
5: State elections are not only important for, for your health care and for your education, but also. Um, 2018 in particular is important and 2020 will be important as well because next decade we're going to draw new congressional districts which will be the opportunity for to outline these new maps for the congressional districts that we'll have for the next 10 years.
2: That's Dylan Scott, Vox policy reporter.
1: Quick aside Congressional redistricting, sometimes called gerrymandering, depending on who you're talking to, is one of those key factors that make these 2018 midterms so important. And it's something we actually dig into our first episode, uh, Five Things You Should Know About the Midterms. So give it a listen. Gerrymandering is a party handpicking their voters.
5: And so which party is in control of the governor's mansion, which party is in control of the state legislature will be be very important for redistricting starting in 2020. You
2: know, some states like California, they do have a redistricting commission that's either bipartisan or nonpartisan. But for the most part, it's the governor and the state legislature that are calling the shots.
5: And I think any expert, whether um, partisan or not, would tell you this. One of the reasons that Republicans have the sizable majority that they do in the House of Representatives right now is that they were in control of redistricting almost 10 years ago. So not only is this important for just every, people's everyday experience with government and the, the whether they are, are eligible for Medicaid or what kind of schools their kids go to, but when you look at control of Congress, um, it's, it's not much of a stretch to say, as one of my colleagues wrote recently, that the next decade of the House of Representatives will be on the ballot in 2018 and in 2020.
2: OK, we got to pause here for one second because what he's saying is huge. He is saying that your vote in this midterm election may end up deciding who you get to vote for for the next 10 years. I mean, think of the possible reverberations of that.
1: It's more than 10, because the people who are put in power stay in power, they keep drawing the districts.
2: There you go.
1: Could be the next 50 elections.
2: Could be the next 100 elections. also made the point that those state legislators have the power to either facilitate or block initiatives that are coming down from the federal level. Like the U.S. Congress can say, jump, and a state Congress can either say, how high, or they can thumb their noses and stick out their tongues at them. Mm
5: -hmm. So under the Affordable Care Act, um, it expanded Medicaid eligibility to cover millions more Americans than it did before the ACA was passed. But states were allowed to decide whether or not they wanted to participate in that Medicaid expansion. And about 20 states have refused to expand Medicaid directly as a result of um, the Republican control of the state legislatures or, or the governorship.
1: That's some real Tenth Amendment action there. Uh, Tenth Amendment, of course, being a super complicated (laughs) amendment about the division of power between the federal government and the states.
2: Right. So the whole principle of states' rights, how states are allowed to govern themselves in many ways, that is a big part of what makes the midterm elections so important. Those elected officials who are close to us, who might have obscure-sounding jobs, they actually have the power to make a big impact on our daily lives. It's often the state-level legislature that maintains the state justice system, that regulates state industry, that maintains highways, implements welfare, decides what to teach kids in schools. And it's the state legislature that decides what a sheriff does. And we get to decide who that sheriff
3: If you are looking for change or if you are thinking about keeping things the way that they are, the reality of it is, if you don't go out and vote, don't complain about it.
2: That's Jeff Stigler again, our sheriff candidate from the beginning of the episode. He won the nomination in New Hampshire's primary, and now it is up to the voters to decide if he will win the office. All right, Nick. So what do you think? I mean, state and local elections are kind of a big deal, right?
1: In some ways, possibly the biggest deal.
2: Now you're talking. Before we sign off, we have another major midterm from the past brought to you by Brady Carlson. Brady used to work here at NHPR as a reporter and on air host. He is now at Wisconsin Public Radio. He is also the author of Dead Presidents, which is a great book. Check it out. Take it away, Brady. What midterm are we talking about?
6: I'm talking about the midterm of 1858. The key issue in the 1850s, of course, was slavery. And that's at the root of everything that takes place in the 1858 midterm. Up until the 1850s, there were two parties, the Democrats and the Whigs. Although, really, there were kind of four parties because each of the two parties had northern and southern wings. And here's why that matters. While the northern states had more population and therefore more representatives in Congress, the pro-slavery southern politicians were still powerful enough that they could block candidates, block bills, block proposals, block anything that didn't fit with their view that enslaving people was not only legal and constitutional, but it was morally right and had to be protected.
3: All we've got is cotton and slaves and arrogance. That's treacherous.
6: To the top political figures of the day, rightly or wrongly, were trying to keep this very tense compromise in place, and as a result of that effort to to keep the slavery debate from boiling over, you have this series of weak presidents in the 1850s. Franklin Pierce of New Hampshire is one. Do
1: you say Mr. Pierce or Mr. President Pierce?
6: Just Mr. President. James Buchanan of Pennsylvania is another. The parties were deliberately choosing people for president that they thought would be very cautious, would not rock the boat. And that would have worked, except by the 1850s, the boat had kind of already been rocked over and over. Fewer and fewer people were interested in setting aside this debate over slavery for the good of the country. And Franklin Pierce understood that firsthand when he signed the bill to allow the citizens of the Kansas Territory to choose whether to allow
5: slavery or not. My men and I came all the way from Kansas to make sure justice prevails. And to ensure the freedom of Negroes in this state.
6: What would you do to us? And it didn't go well. It turned into the violent conflict we now call Bleeding Kansas. And that's recognized today as one of the key milestones on the road to the Civil War. It also realigned the political parties. By signing the Kansas bill, Pierce had undone this compromise that had stood for decades, where there was a geographic line that slavery could exist south of but never north of. Now, slavery could be anywhere, and Northerners were very, very uncomfortable with that. So when Pierce undid this compromise, Northern Democrats, who had been uncomfortable with the pro-slavery wing of the party, felt like they didn't have a political home anymore. This
3: government cannot endure permanently half-slave and half-free.
6: The Northern Democrats decided to leave their party and join up with what was left of the old Whig Party and a group of what were known as Free Soilers, people who had opposed any expansion of slavery in Western territories. They all joined together in a new party called the Republican Party. There's a lot of debate as to where the Republican Party actually started. My state, Wisconsin, has one of the claims. The state of New Hampshire has the other. The important thing to know is that this is a very exclusively northern party. There weren't any southern Republicans and that one of the new Republicans who was an unknown at the time of the party's founding wound up being a pretty important guy, a lawyer from Illinois who had been a little known member of Congress like a decade before, but was so upset about Kansas that he came out of retirement and joined this new political party, Abraham Lincoln.
3: I presume you all know who I am. Abraham Lincoln.
6: The party starts in 1854. Two years later, their presidential candidate John C. Fremont only narrowly lost the presidential election. By the midterm elections of 1858, the party was on an even bigger upswing. The debate over Kansas had flared up again. It was even hotter this time. There had also been a big economic panic the year before, and the new president, James Buchanan, was alienating just about everybody he came in contact with. Suffice to say, voters were pretty fired up. And so when the votes were in for the 1858 midterm, the largest party in the House of Representatives was the Republican Party, which had only begun about four years years earlier. And one of the most surprising stories that came out of the 1858 midterm was Abraham Lincoln, who had run for a high profile U.S. Senate seat in Illinois. It's one he lost to the longtime incumbent Stephen A. Douglas, but he had turned so many heads with his speeches and his well thought out debate points. A house divided against itself cannot stand. That he became a national political figure. In two years, this political nobody who belonged to a brand new unknown party would be elected president of the United
3: States.
2: That is it for this episode in our five-part series on midterm elections, but stay tuned. We've got more coming at you. Civics 101 was produced today by me, Hannah McCarthy, Nick Capodice, and Jackie Helbert.
1: Our executive producer is Erica Janik. Maureen McMurray is local gal does good.
2: Music in this episode by Lupez, Blue Dot Sessions, Quinsas Moreira, and Drew Banga.
1: In addition to subscribing to our podcast, you can give us a visit at civics101podcast.org or follow us on Twitter at civics 101 one pod civics 101 is a production of nhpr new hampshire
4: public radio